are shopping on a budget, simple is good. There's a much higher chance that the budget scope will get something simple, right? Than something really complicated. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Everyday Marksman, the podcast where it is all about tactical skills for living a more adventurous life. Today, I am getting absolutely schooled on optics. And by the way, I'm your host, Matt Robertson, former military officer turned tech sector, corporate grunt, outdoors enthusiast, precision shooter, okay competitor, blogger, podcaster, but most importantly, your friend. Thank you for joining me today. This is a very informative episode uh, where I learned a lot along the way. We are talking to my friend and fellow blogger, Ilya Koshkin, who runs OpticsThoughts.com. And we'll get his background in there. But what you should know before going into this, he is a very, very smart man when it comes to all things optics. And that is the theme of the day. We are talking all about rifle scopes, what to look for, what considerations have to go into it, what technology and engineering goes into those decisions. Of course, you can find today's show notes at our website at everydaymarksman.co. And while you're there, don't forget to look up our, our awesome articles, our other podcast episodes, our great community of marksmen. And oh yeah, while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button. I don't want to waste any more of your time, but if you are pressed, make sure you jump back to the last 10 minutes or so. I'll give you my key takeaways from this interview. Uh, There's a lot of information here, so grab that pen and paper, take some notes. Let's get to it. Ilya, welcome to the Everyday Marksman. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. So I'm going to start off the first question here just to kind of get some background because um, I've been following you for a long time because you are, to put it bluntly, rather prolific all across the internet. Every message board I've been on from AR15.com to Sniper's Hide to Optics Talk, uh, like you're there <laughs> and and you you are one of the experts in the board. So I want to just start off with how did you get to that point? Uh, in a very strange manner. It all started when I was 19 years old and a friend of mine uh, dragged me out to shoot a range to shoot handguns for the very first time. Uh, we rented a Beretta that I despise to this day. Uh, bought 50 rounds of uh, ammunition, 9mm. I fired 50 rounds at a paper target from 7 yards and not a single one even grazed paper, even touched it. And I don't handle failure really well. Uh, so fast forward, you know, 25 years, here we are. I uh, After that, I went and bought a rifle and bought a rifle scope. And it was a cheap Chinese rifle scope, Leapers, if I remember correctly, that promptly uh, fell apart on me. And I hit the internet trying to find some sort of information on how this works, what's good, what's not. At the time, I didn't know anything about rifle scopes. The answers that people were giving me on the internet were completely asinine. Uh, but I knew a lot about optics. I'm an optical physicist by education. And, uh, you know, I went to Caltech, a degree in applied physics. Uh, professionally, my general, my field of expertise is imaging systems and, you know, generalized targeting systems. I, I work with the military on all sorts of things that go on drones, planes, tanks, satellites, that kind of stuff. 
Optics is not a particularly difficult subject, but it's a very different subject. And a lot of the normal basic intuition people have from mechanical devices they work with do not necessarily translate terribly well into optics. And what I found is that there were a lot of people who shot guns and they didn't know anything about optics. There are just a good number of optics people out there who don't know anything about guns. And they don't overlap. I was curious. I took a few scopes apart. And I started writing reviews on different rifle scopes and stuff. And uh, it kind of steamrolled on me from there. An optical physicist. So I remember you mentioned to me before that you, you've been in physics. So optical physics, I figured you had something to do within the industry there. Um, so you mentioned, just to kind of dig into that a little bit, you mentioned that you know it's a little bit different. So you know, it, it, could you summarize a little bit what makes optics different than what most people think of in like mechanics? Because you can touch and feel a lens, but you cannot touch and feel a ray of light. And the way light behaves going through different surfaces, the way refraction works, the way propagation works, is a little bit non-intuitive. And on top of it, what makes it really different is how a human eye captures and interprets the image. The most common example, um, marketing people at Riflescope companies love to talk about light transmission, 90% versus 85%. The way a human eye works, you have no idea if it's 90% or 95% or 85% or 75% of light getting through a Riflescope. Your eye cannot tell the difference between them. Absolutely can't. Image fidelity that you perceive depends on something else. Right? And there are a lot of things in, uh, involved with that, but a pure amount of light is completely unimportant. But to anybody who talks about rifle scope brightness, they always think that light transmission is what determines it. And that's really not the case. Light transmission is important for other reasons. We can talk about that. But image brightness and light transmission, and light transmission don't necessarily have a particularly good correlation. Some of the Scopes with the highest light transmission do not will not look bright to you, will not look sharp, will not look good. Another good example is uh, uh, riflescope tube diameter. How many times have we heard, oh, if it's a larger tube diameter, it means it lets more light through. Everybody who's ever seen a garden hose goes, well, larger diameter garden hose lets more water through. That's not how it works with riflescopes. The equivalent of a diameter of a garden hose is the diameter of the objective lens. The tube has nothing to do with it. Mm. There are other reasons, other advantages for some types of rifle scopes to have a larger diameter tube. There are advantages, there are disadvantages. But amount of light that it gets through is not one of those things. Tube makes no difference with it. I can make you a three-quarter inch or one-quarter inch diameter rifle scope that will pass through just the same amount of light as a two-inch tube. Mm. So we're talking about light gathering so, is the big one on that. That's the objective. Light gathering is sort of a complicated term that I really dislike. It's not a well-defined term, so it's not like you can easily say it's right or it's wrong. Uh, but the term gathering implies something active. And conventional rifle scopes fundamentally 
are passive devices. Whatever light is incident onto the objective lens from whatever field of view a particular optic has, that's what gets into the scope. And a significant amount of it, not everything, gets through and comes out on the other side. Right? So if you want to increase the amount of light, you increase the diameter but the, of the objective. But the objective doesn't go out and gather anything. It's not like it races around the forest trying to gather, gather every photon. It's whatever is coming at it. Uh, because the term light gathering is not defined, I can't unequivocally say it's completely wrong. But it's not right either because it's vague and it doesn't accurately describe what happens. Right. Yeah, I only know a little bit about this from uh, amateur like astronomy, which is something I got into years ago and haven't really kept up. But I know that was a big thing. We say, like, how, how big is the objective of your of your your scope? Uh, the the reason astronomers talk about it is, and there it's a little bit more relevant. Um, there are, so there are two reasons for that. One is that when you're looking at the sky, there's very, very little light available. So a large objective will make a huge difference. Um, but another reason is there's something called the Rayleigh uh, resolution limit. The how well you can resolve very small feature in the field of view of a telescope is almost directly proportional to the diameter of the objective. In a diffraction-limited uh, optic, uh, diffraction-limited means that it's uh, basically perfectly designed. The resolution is the diameter of the objective divided by the wavelength of light you're looking at. So a larger telescope will not only get a little bit more light, but it will also resolve better. Mm. For rifle scopes, all of that technically is true, but not quite as relevant, uh, simply because the things we're looking at are not that small, they're not that far away, but by astronomical standards. And also most rifle scope optics are not diffraction limited per se. They are well designed, but most of them are not that limited, and also most of them have to pay a lot more attention to color than telescopes do, because color is such a big deal for the way a human eye works. Okay. So actually that's a good segue to the next kind of question to getting into this, which is uh, when it comes to optics and, and rifle scopes in particular, um, you know, my, my main passion these days is precision rifle scopes, which is, I get a lot of advice from you these days, but you know, when it comes to trade-offs, I'm very comfortable talking about with an AR-15 or a rifle, like, all right, you're balancing mm -hmm. the weight against the velocity against the, durability and the accuracy kind of all these little elements that balance out but when it comes to right like rifle scopes could you narrow it down to like what are like the five things that you're really balancing between well you're balancing cost against everything else um, you're trying to balance contrast and resolution if you optimize contrast your resolution is going to suffer and, and vice versa if you really maximize all the optical things, the scope becomes very difficult to build mechanically. And if you want to have a large adjustment range, you can't maximize optics because if you maximize the optics, some of the things get larger and you can't move them around all that much. You'd need to have a progressively larger scope. All of that will make the bloody thing heavy. And by the time you get a bill to pay for this thing, you'll be ready for a coronary. 
If you were to try to boil down to five things that I look for in a rifle scope, I want weight, size, mechanical durability, mechanical repeatability, and image fidelity. Image fidelity is a general purpose term for what you get optically out of a scope. Uh, we think about rifle scopes in terms of how good is the glass, how big is the lens, what lens material has been used, does it have ultra-low dispersion glass or low dispersion glass or some undefined HD glass or UHD glass or whatever else. All of this stuff is great for people who market optics because that gives them something to talk about from a standpoint of using a rifle scope. All of those things by themselves are completely irrelevant. All you want optically from a rifle scope is to deliver an image of high fidelity to your eye. That's it. How exactly a rifle scope achieves that should not really be that much of a concern. Now, it's intellectually interesting, and I live for this stuff. But from a standpoint of the user, am I getting the image fidelity that I need? Is the scope staying zeroed under recoil? Do the turrets track if you choose to use them? Does this thing weigh a metric ton? Can I still lift my rifle if the scope is on? That's kind of what it boils down to. And I think that's kind of the the classic rifle scope review that you see out there is, hey, this is really clear. This is really bright. And they don't really go into a whole lot of the other stuff. Correct. Um, and I, if you're asking me as you know, someone who's been trying to learn a lot of these things, I feel like the scope's resolution, the, the image is important, mm -hmm. but there's that point where it's good enough that I'm also now paying more attention to its accuracy of tracking. You know, what's it, how, how is it going to last over time? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think people don't talk about as much, probably because that's more difficult to test. It's more difficult to test. And another problem is that, so I review a lot of scopes. You know, when you see my reviews, I look at a ton of scopes every year, right? And if you, you know, I have a list of recommendations and all that. And if you really want to know what I think, ask me what I actually use, right? Because I look at a lot of scopes, they come and go, there are a few that stay. The problem with reliability measurements is that you cannot determine them on a sample of one. One of the most popular things that people like on YouTube, somebody goes and throws his scope off a roof of a building, drives over it with a truck, kills some baby seals with it, <laughs> gives it to a polar bear to chew on. Lord knows what. They blow it up with tenor. God, they do weirdest thing. And when the scope breaks... They go, don't use it. It's not reliable. It's a sample of one. It is statistically insignificant. By torturing one sample of a product, you can tell nothing. There is a really well-known YouTube reviewer, a guy, Aaron something, Sage Dynamics. Seems like a really good guy, a very good shot. I saw him once take, put a red dot sight on his pistol, stand by a wooden post, and cycle the slide 50 times in a row, um, the red dot site that was not designed for this broke, and he immediately announced this is not for duty use, maybe target shooting. This is the stuff that gets clicks. This is the stuff that people focus on. And with all respect to Aaron, if I ever have a chance to go take a class from him, I will. But Lord, does he not understand statistics and reliability. 
Optical quality, on the other hand, while there is significant, sometimes, sample-to-sample -sample variation, a lot of this is designed in. If I look at one scope and it looks good optically, there is a really high chance that the rest of these will be quite good. There will be some variation, but it's not going to be as much. While on durability, there really isn't anything I can say offhand off of one. If I take a scope, I use it for a few years, I do a few things with them, I check the turrets and all that. It's indicative of something, but it's not conclusive. The only thing that's conclusive is when a few thousand of these are out in the field working well, then we know. So really, we're getting into the engineering of things now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, anybody can talk about like favorite scopes and what's your favorite reticle design. But I think really, the, the, what I'm interested in learning more about is these design decisions that go into, like you said, built it in. So why would you, mm -hmm. for instance, pick uh, an erector ratio of four or six, or how does that affect the cost of something, right, uh, versus a fixed magnification? Yes. Well, so. The larger the zoom ratio, the more complicated one of the optical systems is. The rifle scope has three optical systems in it. The objective, the erector system, and the eyepiece. If you make one of them more complicated, the other ones will have to start getting a little bit more complicated as well. But the biggest uh, impact there is on the erector design. That's where magnification happens. One of the things that happens, so the beam as it travels through the scope and go the optical, the light beam, uh, as it travels through the scope and goes through different optical elements, all sort of stuff, it changes size. And the larger the magnification ratio, the larger is the ratio between spot sizes in front of the erector system is and uh, behind the erector system. Front focal plane and second focal plane, right? If, let's say, this scope has a four-time erector ratio, right? That means the ratio between maximum spot it takes from the front focal plane and smallest spot is times four. If it's an eight-time erector ratio, it's times eight. So just for anybody who, who, who might be listening to this and not knowing what we're talking about with the ratios too, like... A 4x ratio is like your classic 4 to 16. 4x to the low end, 16 to the high end. You know, a 6x would be your 5 to 30. So the, the, the difference between the lowest and the highest. Correct. So you're looking, you either have to be able to resolve a very small spot or you end up with having to work with a very large light spot. So you've mentioned spot a few times. Can you talk about what, what you mean when you talk about the spot? So the objective lens... Uh, which determines ultimate resolution, and everything that happens uh, after that is just trying to not degrade it too much. Objective lens that doesn't move, it takes in the scene, whatever the rifle scope is moving at, is looking at, excuse me, and in the front focal plane, it creates a basically large circular spot. That's the image. If it was a camera, that's where the image sensor would sit. Okay. But it's not a camera, so there is a front focal plane that is a fairly large oversized image that's in there. The erector system behind it, right, what it does, it takes a small portion of that image, right, and goes and massages it and pushes it back toward the eyepiece. When you adjust the windage or elevation of a rifle scope, the whole erector system tube with the reticle at the front of it moves up and down, left and right. So when you 
dials some amount of elevation, the reticle cell physically moves within that larger image created by the objective lens and samples one small portion of that image to pass further down the rifle scope. If it samples a very small portion and the objective lens has created a large image, that means you have a lot of windage and elevation adjustment. You have a lot of space to move the reticle in while still seeing something, not clipping anything. If you have a four-time erector ratio in a rifle scope, that means that when you are at a maximum magnification, you're taking a very small spot from the image created by the objective. But when you are at a minimum magnification, the spot you are sampling from the image created by the objective is four times bigger. So just as a as a clear for my like me understanding, that's also why the field of view mm -hmm. narrows down as you increase magnification. As you go on, exactly exactly right right. Okay. The uh, that's actually a good point. So do you know how magnification is defined for any direct view optic? No. It's not what most people think. It is completely angular. Imagine the angle that the eyepiece or the rear element of the eyepiece subtends with respect to your eye. Right? That's what you see. That's what your eye sees. Then imagine the angle that the field of view of the rifle scope coming out of the objective subtends. That's what the rifle scope sees. The ratio of those two angles is magnification. That's how you can have the same magnification with the wider or narrower field of view with different rifle scopes. But if it sees wide up front, it's also going to present a physically larger, wider image to your eye coming out of the eyepiece. And if you go lower in magnification, if you think about these angles, you start seeing a larger angle coming out of the objective of the rifle scope. The angle of field presented to your eye from the eyepiece remains the same. But you are seeing more, a larger angle through the objective. It's, this stuff is more easy to draw and not so easy to explain in <laughs> <Yeah>. words. <laughs> I think I have a couple of videos on YouTube actually talking about this. I'll, I will link to those in the show notes to this one. Uh, where was I? Yeah, so let me finish the point, right? So let's get back to the image created by the objective lens, right? If your erector ratio is not four times, but let's say eight times, like one of my favorite rifle scores is a 3 to 24 by 52 March, right? The lowest magnification is 3, highest magnification is 24. The erector ratio is 8. So in order to do all of that in a fairly compact scope, March has to make an incredibly high quality objective lens where at the high magnification, you can sample a very small spot and still see good resolution. If you were to make this rifle scope in such a way that this spot, the erector system samples is larger, you would end up with a much larger tube and all the other subsequent optical elements also being much larger. It's much easier to make a high erector ratio rifle scope with a large tube and long body. Much harder to make it compact. So in fact, that goes into the engineering then of like, I know the newest thing in the market is these, these one to tens, for instance, which have fairly narrow like objectives compared to what I would mm -hmm. think of as a rifle scope. So that's going to increase the cost to engineer all of that. Correct, but they're much easier to make with a small diameter objective. That uh, that uh, 
I have the Vortex Razor Gen 3 1 to 10 here. That's a wonderful scope. They did a very good job with it. But I also know how they specified the objective. I will say that in many ways, despite being small, this is one of the more complicated systems Vortex has ever done. Optically, probably the most complicated. So continue on this thread of engineering. One of the things that I thought about when it came to the turrets and adjustments, aside mm -hmm. from the whole, like, I'm going to do locking, non-locking, you know, okay, that, that's, that's interesting. That's more choice. But the, the underlying mechanics of it, um, I don't know, what kind of compromises go into making accurate adjustments? Turrets are uh, mechanical in nature. There are multiple uh, complications there. From a durability, repeatability standpoint, you want them, you want internal stuff where their teeth are for the clicks and all that sort of stuff. You want that made out of some fairly hard and durable metal. There's a big push towards stainless steel. You still, a lot of these used to be hardened brass, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, big push towards stainless steel. It's a little bit harder to cut and all that, but it's but it um, stays better. And when you use everything, when you do everything from uh, stainless steel, you also avoid the galvanic fusion. When you have dissimilar metals, they can fuse over time if you don't touch them. So that's one uh, major problem. Another big issue is that when you dial a turret, there's a step that goes inside the scope which either pushes or pulls on the erector tube. So the erector tube physically moves. That's what moves the reticle, right? And that's what changes the point of aim. As the erector tube bends, it changes its angle. You have to have an extremely consistent contact between the stem that comes from the turret and the body of the erector tube. Otherwise, as it goes at a more severe angle, your click values can change. Make sense? Yeah, so so the, the further off you get from the ideal contact, let's say that's center, then then just the, the, the touch points get less quality, so you don't get that exact 0.1 mil per. They, uh, correct. Now, high-quality scopes have resolved that there are multiple ways to solve that issue, uh, but they'll take space, and they all require some very precise engineered and very small pieces. Getting tracking right, in principle, is not that complicated but you just have to cut things precisely and maintain tolerances and willing to discard a lot of stuff that doesn't pass qc mm. complications really start when we start adding too many features this kind of comes back to compromises if you want a super fancy turrets that have a zero stop and that lock and make you coffee and all that sort of stuff uh, prepare to pay some money if you are shopping on a budget, simple is good. There's a much higher chance that a budget scope will get something simple right than something really complicated. The best turret in the business is, uh, I think, Tangent Theta. I have a couple of those scopes. As you know, someday they, they will be pried from my cold dead hands. <laughs> Uh, you know, every everything comes and goes, right? My tangents stay. I have a, mark, uh, a couple of March scopes that stay. There are some others, right? Yeah, for different reasons. But just because I think they're extremely well executed for the money. I know how tangent proves out their turrets. When they uh, did life cycle testing, I think the, they built a machine that would twist the turret and they did it at different temperatures from minus 40 centigrade to plus 50 and all sort of stuff. 
I think it's uh, close to 80 or 100,000 revolutions. And still has to have reasonable feel, still has to track and all that sort of stuff. If you ever wonder why tangent data costs $5,000, well, you're paying for that lifecycle testing, among other things. Yeah, I feel like that's the same principle as when I talk about high quality barrels or something. It's You're not necessarily paying for the materials. You're paying because all the QC checks that have to go into a high quality item that's going to work. Correct. But also the engineering has been proven out. Yeah. They didn't just figure, okay, this is a good idea. We're going to make it and sell it. No, this was a good idea. We're going to make it. Then we're going to beat it up. Then we'll beat it up a little more. Then we'll torture it. Then we'll do something we can't tell the Geneva Convention about. And if it all pans out, then we're going to sell it. This intermediary step of torturing this thing to death is something that probably 70% of the companies don't do very much. Mm. You're a beta tester for a significant number of these companies. So a big piece of advice that I think I took out of that, that was if you're on a budget, then pick something simple. So probably Correct. relatively lower retro ratio, skip the zero stop blocking turrets, but it'll do it well. I feel like there's a couple of brands out there that, that do that really well. They'll, they'll do really good at the simple sure. thing. Well, the almost obvious one is SWFA. Mm. Now, I happen to know these guys really well. They're, the, they're a big reason why I got into this whole review stuff. I stumbled onto their forum optics talk at the very beginning of it. It was just good timing. And they recognized that uh, I know optics adequately well. And they uh, approached me and told me that they are willing to extend the discount if I want to get anything to try. And it was a sufficiently good discount where I was able to buy scopes, test them, and then sell them without losing too much money. Mm. That's how I got into this. Right. Um, and I've maintained a friendly relationship with them. One of the uh, side effects of that friendly relationship is that I know the statistics of how many of their scopes get returned from mm. problems. And it is astonishingly low. Whenever somebody asks me for something, some sort of precision scope on a budget, more than half the time, I recommend one of the SWFA scopes. They're not the most feature-rich, but they've been around for forever and a day. They don't change their designs very much. So we know how reliable they are. We know exactly what they do. If you don't feel like being very adventurous and you are on a budget, that's probably the first place you should look. Yeah, it's funny. That's actually who I was thinking of. Uh, probably some yeah. your advice years ago when I first started looking into scopes. Uh, quite possible. <laughs> it doesn't mean that other scopes that potentially offer more features for the money and all that are bad. Mm. The problem is that many of these models are not going to be in production long enough to, for us to figure out if how good or bad they really are. If you are dealing with an OEM, a lot of OEMs, especially for smaller brands, they will wrap their scope models every year, every two years, right? So how many of those will be sold? Will we ever know the reliability? And on top of it, they, as they make them, especially in China, they keep making changes without telling anyone. Mm. If you, Each batch is a little bit different for a lot of, not all of them. There are some that are quite, quite respectable and do things the right way, but a significant number of them Tweak things all the time. You buy scope to scopes from two batches. There are different designs inside. It looks the same outside. Doesn't mean they're the same inside. Hmm. 
So I want to kind of go back into different Scotiabank uses. So just to give some backstory on this, um, also on your recommendation, I picked up a Steiner P4XI, uh, four to sixteen, and it just does a lot of things really well. I haven't published my own review of it on the site yet, but it does a lot of things really well. And and we were kind of going back and forth leading up to this, and you mentioned kind of all the design trade offs they wanted because it was targeted towards a police market, you know, eight hundred yards and in, wanted to have a lot of good like really good brightness. Um, so that's why they built it the way they did. And it got me thinking about, you know, if we're bucketing different kinds of optics from hunting to tactical to competition, like what, what design considerations do you think really define those? Oh, good question. There are several that you have to think about. The three obvious ones are radical, Objective diameter and weight. Notice I didn't say magnification range. In many ways, it's important, but in many ways, that's going to come out of the objective lens diameter. If you are looking to do a lot of shooting in low light at distance, you need a large objective. Simply because without a large objective, using comparatively high magnification in low light is difficult. And that's what's going to matter if you need to hit something in low light at 400 yards. So that's one way where the objective lens diameter drives usable magnification. If you are primarily a hunter in Europe, a lot of the considerations are similar simply because in Europe they they can hunt at night. So that's one of the reasons so many European scopes often have large objective diameters. In the U.S., where you don't generally hunt at night unless it's pigs, you can get away with a moderate objective diameter, but because you may be hiking up and down a mountain a lot, weight becomes a big deal. So what you're trying to do if you're a general purpose hunter in North America, you're trying to get the maximum performance with the reasonable weight. So my tangent data, 5 to 25 by 56, is an amazing scope. Uh, It weighs 3 pounds. So if I put it on a, a seven-pound rifle before I added mount slings or ammo, I have just increased the weight of the rifle by nearly fifty percent. And you know, on five power, the tension data is probably a really good hunting scope. I'd rather slip my own wrist and carry that up a mountain. That's just to tell you how lazy I am, right? Uh, and that's the compromise. Uh, no hunting scope in the world performs as well as at large tangent theater, but do they perform well enough? Uh, there is only so much optical and mechanical quality I'm willing to sacrifice on the ultra weight, but there is quite a bit. Uh, I'll give you an example. So my uh, hun- I have a hunting rifle. It's a Browning BLR uh, takedown in 300 uh, Winchester short magnum. The scope that's on it is a 1.5 to 8 by 32. 32 millimeter objective. It's a Vortex Razor HDLH, which unfortunately has been discontinued. It's a wonderful little scope. I can use it in the dark, up to 6-7 power, quite comfortably. Um, it weighs 13 ounces, I think, right, and does not affect the balance of my rifle, and I can shoot really well with it. Is it the best 800-yard rifle in the world? No. Um, is it sufficient for me for any distance where I'm competent enough to shoot at a living thing? Yes. Is this the best general purpose hunting scope? No, too small. 
modern day in the past the general uh, general purpose hunting scope was a 3 to 9 by 42 mm. or 3 to 9 by 40 there is a reason for it that that kind of a design does everything well but technology moves on now a general purpose hunting scope is a 3 to 15 by 42 right now if you want general purpose performance for everything you can do that is pretty much something that uh, something that uh, you should be looking at roughly around that size. If you are looking to do more low light, you may bump up the objective. If not, then that's the configuration you want to have. The best general purpose quote-unquote crossover scope in the world right now is March 3 to 24 by 52. So I happen to have that one. Uh, and it is comparatively lightweight and it does everything reasonably well. It's not the best high magnification scope, it's not the best low magnification scope, but as a compromise between different things, it's as good as we currently have. Yeah, and I just to tend to go to the competition world, then, you know, people who are really the precision shooting, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like they're less concerned about weight. And then, right. depending if they're shooting at night, I mean, I really think they're more about that resolution at distance, but I feel like they're really big onto the turrets. Like, how do I adjust my turrets quickly? Uh, easy to grab kind of thing. Yes. Um, they are big on reticles, turrets, and depth of field. So you're yeah, talking yeah. about PRS-type shooting, practical rifle shooting. Because when you talk about competitions, there's also F-class and bed trust. Yeah. And that's different requirements. If you're talking about a PRS-type uh, scope, Arguably, it needs to stay zero. Turrets need to, need need to track, and it has to have a reticle you can use. Those are the biggies, and everything else comes after these uh, these criteria are satisfied. Uh, to uh, to give you an idea of how important the reticle is, for example, the early success of Carlos in PRS back when the guys who currently are behind the zero compromise optics, they used to be colors. Um, they made colors the big name in PRS that it is, basically on the strength of really good reticles, the SKMR series reticles. There was no other real good reason for colors to be successful in PRS uh, other than those reticles, and they were head of the competition in terms of reticles. Now a bunch of other people have good reticles and colors Population is uh, popularity in PRS is going down a little bit despite all the sponsorships and all that stuff. Uh, because while their scopes are very nice, in many ways, competition is uh, has caught up or surpassed them. Um, another example is tangent data that keeps on, keep on bringing up. The traditional reticle they had was the Gen 2 XR, which is a nice general purpose reticle, but it's not the best competition reticle. So they made Gen 3 XR. No other changes to the scope. And I think last year, when Gen 3 XR came out, the number of tangent theaters on the field went up by, I don't know, 500%. Because optomechanical, it is the best scope in the world right now. But if it didn't have the right reticle for PRS, I mean, they'll complain, but they won't use it. I'm, I know, I think there's still this internal debate, and I don't want to go down this path, but like, you know, tree reticles versus the traditional cross reticle. 
Um, I think that's a lot of personal preference, but, mm-hmm. but when it comes to reticles and I know you, you designed a couple, uh, for a scope I reviewed, uh, me optic mm-hmm. optica six, um, you know, what are, what are the considerations do you think go into a good, a well-designed reticle? Oof, that's a separate podcast. Okay. Uh, so for general purpose, precision shooting, I use it. A three reticle is not required. I happen to like them, and I'll talk about that in a moment and why. Uh, but it's not required, and then they do introduce significant uh, downsides for some things. In PRS, a good three reticle is almost required because most competitions have some sort of a stage where you're not allowed to dial. If you're not allowed to dial and there is any sort of wind, you have to have some sort of a three reticle. Otherwise, you're aiming with an empty spot with no references nearby. So most PRS scopes uh, have some sort of a tree reticle at least available. Okay. The downside of a tree reticle is that there is a lot of crap in the image. And we are trying to see splash, trajectory, all this sort of stuff. You don't want to be blocking all of it. On top of it, uh, when you are looking at a well-designed reticle, a few things happen. One of them is that there is a primary aiming point. That's you know the center crosshair or floating dot or whatever uh, the reticle has. And your eye has to naturally go to that primary aiming point. Uh, one of my least favorite three reticle designs are the Horus reticles, which vary from manageable H59 to an abomination like... Uh, Trevor 3, one of the reasons I dislike those things is that they throw a ton of stuff in there, presumably to impress mole ninjas. And most of that's completely useless if you never use them. Uh, you're a precision shooter. If a reticle has 30 milliradian of holdover, how many times have you used holdover at, let's say, 27 milliradian? I shoot subsonic blackout to 1,000 yards. That takes around 50 milliradian close to it. And I dial for the, that mostly um, and combine it with the reticle and all sorts. Outside of that, there is not a damn thing you can do with it. But there are other issues with it. Most of the aiming you do on a regular basis, you want to do somewhere toward the center of the image because it's magical for us. That's how human brain works. That's how we aim. And most rifle scopes have a certain sweet spot. And if you go outside of that, focus changes, parallax changes, there is some distortion. The distortion and all those focus changes still allow you to see the target reasonably well, but oftentimes it introduces problems with aiming. So the way I tend to shoot within, with most common uh, calibers, within 500 yards so, I like to use the reticle because it gives me reasonable precision and I can do it very quickly. Once we go beyond that, I tend to dial and then do corrections with the reticle. But that way I can always stay in a general vicinity of the center of the reticle. In practical terms, I very seldom use reticle holds more than four four or five milliradian away from center. And if you saw, you know, you saw my myopter reticle design, I made the tree as unobtrusive as I could. Yeah, and that's actually what I really liked about it compared to some of the other ones I've seen. So in the scope, the myopter you looked at is a 5 to 30 by 56 design. 
right? And the way I try to size the radical, I don't want to see the tree below 10 power, or at least not easily. That's roughly, I do most of my shooting between 12 and 15, 12 and 18. I use high magnification to dial up, to look at wind, mirage, that kind of stuff. Uh, in field conditions, I shoot better at lower magnification. Right. And uh, if the conditions get really bad, I don't want to use the tree because that becomes complicated. And I dial down, turn on illumination, and then adjust the duplex radical. I know we're going to run out of time here, so I, I want to go to the next thing here is I want to give you a chance to do any myth busting. Is there any like your top pet peeves that you hear told about scopes? Well, the one, yeah, the one we covered in the beginning, tube diameter, is the one that probably pieces, of, pieces me off the most because I've spent 20 years trying to squash it and it's still there. The biggest thing is not so much myth busting. It's... Um, uh, more of a looking at the fundamentals. We live in a very competitive world where a lot of products have very widely varying feature set. And we become so focused on features that we forget about fundamentals. And this kind of stuff really drives me up the walls. The next guy who comes over and asks me to validate his purchase of a $150 Monstrum scope that goes from 10 to 70,000 power and makes a wonderful paperweight, I might blow a gasket. I gladly and joyfully field a lot of questions. These days, probably half of the time when people ask me a question, they are trying to get me to validate the purchase they already made. And I tell them to, you know, next time, ask me before you buy this piece of crap. I think there's, there's, a, there's a hard point in this where, you know, even in the last 20 years, you know, going back to 2000 at this point, there's been, I feel like so much more competition and advancement that things that used to be $3,000 20 years ago or where it didn't even exist, you can get reasonably affordably today. Right. Uh, it's just, just gotten cheaper across the board to do some really high quality stuff. So everybody's trying to like compete on the minutia. The fundamentals for most scopes up there are not as well worked out as you would think. But there is sort of an inflection point, a price after which you get into diminishing returns. With hunting scopes, it's about 800 bucks. Once you go much above that, you're starting to get into diminishing returns. With tactical rifle scopes, you really hit diminishing returns after about 1500, like the Delta Striker level, that kind of stuff. Uh, with red dot sights, as much as I love aim points and a few others, uh, unless you're putting your life on the line, you start getting diminishing returns after about 300. With prismatic scopes, that gets a little bit different. That's a separate conversation. Uh, it's, it's around 1,000, but that's an artificial number because the competition mm -hmm. is weak. Yeah, I can't see. I, I think I can't think of a whole lot of prismatic scopes out there anymore outside of the, the ACOG series. Yeah, well, it's the ACOG and the LCAN. Um, there are a few others. Burris has a few. I just got done reviewing Crimson Trace 3.5 uh, power battle site, which is surprisingly competent for about 500 bucks. But ultimately, they're being displaced by low power variables. And there, where the inflection point is, where the case of diminishing returns is, is not really clear because of such a great variety of different stuff. 
So the jury, they're still out. With second focal plane scopes, you hit diminishing returns after about 800 to 1,000. With front focal plane, I think it goes higher. Because they're just not that many yet, and they're not that good. Are any other any other miss you you wanna you wanna tackle? No, actually, there is one more. It's not so much a myth; it's a fundamental misunderstanding. Mm. High relief. Who decreed that you need to have four inches of high relief on a two to three? <laughs> I, I, I. If I had to take a guess at that one, I would say it's probably because people want to be able to shoot at weird angles like i want to lay on my back and then hold the rifle out in front of me and, and still get a sight picture how practical it is i don't know uh eye relief is doesn't have time to do with it you want to have very forgiving eye relief but the length of eye relief and how forgiving it is the proverbial eye box another term i despise immensely but i don't have a better one um this eye box is somewhat related to the length of eye relief, but not as much as you'd think. Having an eye relief longer than you need on a uh, for a weapon platform that doesn't have too much recoil is detrimental to everything. The shorter the eye relief, within reason, the better an image is going to look when you're looking through a rifle scope with the same basic optical quality. Simply because the eyepiece of a rifle scope subtends a larger field of view of your eye and your eye is not taking in uh, information from outside the scope. That allows your brain to process the image in a much better way. I've been advising a lot of different scope manufacturers to focus on that a little bit more and some are finally doing it. For a ton of applications outside of you know, hunting heavy recoiling calibers, you don't need a lot of eye relief. And excessively long eye relief is a bad idea for almost everything else other than keeping your uh, eyebrow from getting hit by a rifle scope. If it's not a high recoil application, short eye relief is your friend. All right, I've got one more question for you. And it's the one I asked everybody. You take a minute to think about it. But um, what is the one thing that you wish people would stop doing right now? People would stop doing shooting from the bench exclusively. You can't figure out how your gear works if all you do is shoot from the bench. You just can't. It's not the same. Yeah, nice, nice, nice rifle support. You know, nice sunny day sitting down. It's not, it's not field conditions at all. So you uh, had a podcast with a guy, something Simpson, the guy who wrote yep, the sniper John book. I don't remember Episode the name. number two. Yeah. Yeah. So I read his book. Uh, I didn't listen to that whole podcast. I'm kind of time limited. Uh, I, I listened to bits and pieces here and there, and I but but I pay attention. And I uh, was so overjoyed when he in his book says when you shoot off the bench, shoot with the stock unsupported by anything other than your shoulder. That way you're at least developing mm -hmm. some skills. I've been trying to push that idea through for about 20 years now and nobody's paying any attention. Unless I'm setting in a scope, the buttstock is not supported by anything. 30% of the time I spend shooting, I shoot standing or of hand. I shoot sitting, shoot kneeling, I shoot prone. The only time I hit the bench is when I'm sighting something. Else. That has made more difference for my shooting 
than anything, well, aside from proper instruction, that made more difference for my shooting than anything else. And it also made more difference for my understanding of how rifle scopes are used than anything else. Well, if anybody wants to come find you after they listen to this one, where can they go? Uh, well, hit the internet and search for Dark Lord of Optics. I'll pop up like the pictures. <laughs> okay. So Dark Lord of Optics. Uh, you also have your blog, so Optics Thoughts. Uh, and then... Yeah, if you go darklordofoptics.com, it forwards to Optics Thoughts. But I am uh, comparatively active on Instagram and Facebook and my website and the different forums. Uh, Dark Lord of Optics is easier to spell than my name, so <laughs> I go back. All right. It. Well, Ilya, thank you very much for the conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, let's talk about my key takeaways from this interview with Ilya. There was a lot of information in here, so it's going to be difficult to narrow it down to just a few, but I'm going to do my best. And number one, I'm going to lead off with the very thing that Ilya says he is on a warpath to dispel, and that is larger scope tubes do not mean more light passing through the scope. All right, got it. I know you've heard it. I know I've heard it. I might have even thought it, but it's wrong. Stop saying it. But what more scope diameter on the tube does give you is adjustment range, so you get that extra windage and elevation. What does affect the amount of light entering the scope, however, is the objective diameter. So, you know, 32 millimeter on a small end, 42 is the classic hunter range, and then up to 50, 56 millimeter. And the reason you would want more light coming in through that objective is to get brightness. So if you're shooting anything towards the darker hours of the day, dusk, dawn, or nighttime, in case you're doing tactical or law enforcement style shooting, then you want that larger objective to help you out. Key point number two for me is that everything is a compromise. You cannot build an optic that's going to cover all the grounds and yet still be something you can afford. So you have to choose between the weight, the durability, the adjustments, and how accurate they are, mechanical soundness of it, the fidelity of it, and all the complicated bits on the inside. And if you can afford to go that route up to the $5,000 scope range, as Illy pointed out with tangent data, then cool. But I realize you know, as the everyday marksman, that is not something that everyday folks are going to be able to jump for, or it's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime investment. So in that case, if you are going to be thinking on the more budget-friendly end of things, keep it simple. Look for the things that are done really well at the basic level. I think Ilya gave a great example in there of SWFA. Uh, I've definitely enjoyed their products in the past, and I continue to recommend those as well. Um, they do the basics really well, and they're going to kind of skimp on the fluff stuff that marketing marketers love to, to go after. Speaking of that, as I've said many times in the past, you need to look past marketing hype a little bit and know that when a marketing guy is talking about something as a cool, new killer feature, it may or not mean anything. Uh, a great example Leah mentioned was talking about light transmission. You know, some people will talk about, I've got 85% or 90% or 95% light transmission, but the reality is the human eye doesn't work that way. The human eye doesn't care. Um, it all comes down to how the scope is actually going to set up with the coatings and how well it produces resolution. So the human eye works differently. Key takeaway number three comes down to knowing your use case. 
Uh, we had a little discussion there talking about you know, what, what a hunter want versus a competitor versus a tactical shooter. Hunters are going to care a lot more about weight and you're shooting primarily in daylight hours, meaning that you can get away with a lighter weight scope because you're going to have to mount that to the rifle and you want to make sure it stays light. And because you're shooting in daylight, you don't have to worry as much about how bright the optic is going to be at those late hours in the evening or really early in the morning. If you're a competition shooter, it's really going to come down to the vertical and how well the turrets track and return to zero. So that's the most important thing. Don't care as much about weight. In fact, in competition, weight's kind of your friend because that helps absorb some of that recoil. As a tactical shooter, then you are definitely concerned about uh, maintaining accuracy, brightness, especially if you're doing anything in the evening, and also intelligent reticle designs. Now, some interesting points that came about with reticle designs. Uh, a lot of it's personal preference, but Ilya did talk about how the eye tends to want to do things in the middle. There's a sweet spot. So you want to look at reticles that help you focus on doing that. When it comes to second focal plane, first focal plane, all that stuff is interesting. And there's definitely a preference for first focal plane or well-designed first focal plane reticles. But you want to be able to stick to the middle. And that means a lot of these products out there that have these massive trees that go down 30 mils of, of, of holdover, not that practical because you're probably never going to have to hold over that far and they draw your eye further away from the center aiming point, which is not something you want to be doing. So I thought that was a good takeaway there. Now, one more that I want to share with you is just some of those key price points for the diminishing returns. I know it's not a popular topic to talk about something that the the inflection point where you go from diminishing returns is, is actually something that's pretty expensive, um, but it is true. So the examples we got in there was for hunting scopes, really once you cross that $800 threshold, then you're starting to get less for your money as you go higher and higher. For tactical scopes, you're talking about $1,500. Uh, you're paying for less and less after that. And then when you get to red dot sites, you're about 300. Uh, paying more than that, you get into your aim points and that's really paying more for durability, uh, but optically they'll work great. And then low power variables, you're again, you're looking in that $800 for the second focal planes and then on up into the thousands for the first focal planes. Now, does that mean if you buy something significantly cheaper than that, such as I just bought a $500 scope for an upcoming uh, 22 long rifle project, uh, which you're hearing here has been dubbed the noisy cricket by, by a lot of my readers, um, no, it's, it's, it's probably going to be fine, but know what you're trading off when you, when you make that decision. Okay, that is my key takeaways. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Before you head off, I just want to say thank you for listening. I hope you're doing well. Uh, we are recording this right at the beginning of, of well, June as I'm making this statement here. Um, and I know people have been crammed up and cooped up for a couple months and people or tensions are running high. So I hope you're doing all right. Take that moment just to de-stress. And hey, if you're a member of our community at, at community.everydaymarksman.co, uh, the Marksman's Quarter, as we call ourselves, and make sure you connect with everybody, check in with everybody, tell us how you're doing and share what's on your mind. If you're not a member of our community yet, then still go by community.everydaymarksman.co and sign up to get on that waiting list. So the next time we have openings, you make sure, uh, I'll make sure to get you that invite and you can join up with a bunch of like-minded folks who are really just trying to improve our lives through the study of tactical skills. All right, that is it for me. Have a wonderful weekend. I will catch you next week. See you later.